This is Quotations, a podcast about words, written and spoken throughout history. If you can fill the unforgiving minute with 60 seconds worth of distance run, we shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. No matter where you're from, your dreams are valid. The Pale Blue Dot, the only home we've ever known. Hello and welcome to Quotations. I'm Matthew Monroe. Here's today's quote. Quote, Humility is not a virtue propitious to the artist. It is often pride, emulation, avarice, malice, all the odious qualities, which drive a man to complete, elaborate, refine, destroy, renew his work until he has made something that gratifies his pride and envy and greed. And in doing so, he enriches the world more than the generous and good, though he may lose his own soul in the process. That is the paradox of artistic achievement. End quote. Those are the words of Evelyn Waugh, born October 28, 1903, in London, England, by the name Arthur Evelyn St. John Waugh. He died April 10, 1966, in Somerset, England. Though he was known and went by Evelyn essentially his entire life. His father's name was Arthur, so perhaps this was meant to avoid any confusion. Waugh was an author and journalist, and served in the British Royal Marines and Royal Horse Guards during World War II. And as a journalist, he reported directly from war zones prior to his service. This included modern-day Ethiopia, formerly known as Abyssinia, when Italy invaded there in 1935. And all of these experiences contributed significantly to his writings and, as all of our experiences do, to his worldview, which was quite conservative in nature. Waugh was a converted Catholic later in life and was heavily concerned throughout his life that the world was degrading before his very eyes, perhaps irrevocably as a result of both church reform, the welfare state, and societal departures from traditional ways, classic conservative ideas. And he held some distasteful positions on both anti-Semitism and on social hierarchy, essentially that the poor deserve to be poor, more importantly the rich deserve to be rich, and that that Stratification was necessary for the functioning of society. And, as usual, I like to point these out when I can, not to disqualify his words, but to paint an accurate picture of him as both a speaker and a writer. Waugh attended Oxford, and, though due to a loss of scholarship, did not graduate with a degree there, and this certainly did not stop him from writing prolifically throughout his life, including numerous essays, reviews, news articles, and at least 18 novels. He was married twice, and he was a father to seven children as well. Now that said, now that you know a little bit about the man, let me set the stage for the quote for you. It's a little bit confusing. The quote comes from a book review penned by Waugh in 1961. Remember, he died in 1966, so this is about five years before his death. The book that he is reviewing is a biography by the author Gary Willis called Chesterton, Man and Mask, published that very same year. Now, the reference to Chesterton is Gilbert Keith Chesterton, an English writer, orator, philosopher, and devout Catholic himself. He had died in 1936, 25 years before Willis's biography and Waugh's subsequent review of that biography. So if you're following, we have a review of a biography written by an author about another author. Gripping stuff, I know. Stay with me. Chesterton wrote a lot, and I mean a lot, he published dozens of books in his life, and Willis, for the biography, seems to have read every single one of them. 
and that's serious devotion considering how much the man put pen to paper. Waugh's review of the biography is mixed, with criticisms leveled for applying doctoral research standards to the many and varied works of an author, and using too many lecture room jargon words for Waugh's tastes. Those are his criticisms of Willis. However, simultaneously, it offers praise for sticking to the facts of the reading rather than speculations about the man, Chesterton. In short, it's kind of a neutral review, I suppose, if you take it in aggregate. But Wad does point out that Chesterton may have written too much and that his quality of work may not have been the highest as a result. He attributes this to the financial need to overproduce or financial need driving him to overproduce at a lower quality. And this makes sense on its face, as a writer only earns when their works are bought and read. So it could very well be that in order to keep food on the table and take care of his family and provide for himself, he indeed did need to continue to produce, even if it wasn't the highest quality writing that an author is capable of. So Waugh acknowledges Chesterton's shortcomings, his often muddled thoughts, a result of the quality control process maybe not being what it should be, and his disparate nuggets of wisdom woven together sometimes clumsily. Right? All of those things he calls out in the review. Of course, in the early 20th century language that nobody uses today, but if you read it, and I have, it is indeed a mixed bag. And then, towards the end of the review, he delivers today's quote, which I'm going to read for you again. He says, quote, Humility is not a virtue propitious to the artist. It is often pride, emulation, avarice, malice, all the odious qualities, which drive a man to complete, elaborate, refine, destroy, renew his work until he has made something that gratifies his pride and envy and greed. And in doing so, he enriches the world more than the generous and good, though he may lose his own soul in the process. That is the paradox of artistic achievement. End quote. So why does Waugh add this to a book review, of all things? Well, for one thing, he's painting a picture of imperfection that results, occasionally, in something outstanding. In this case, Waugh has just applauded Chesterton's The Everlasting Man. It's another book that Chesterton wrote, which he calls a, quote, really great popular book of the century, end quote. And notes that in it, all Chesterton's random thoughts that he accuses him of in other places are, quote, concentrated and refined, end quote. Which is exactly what you hope a finished product from an accomplished author would be. Concentrated and refined. It's easy to throw thoughts out into the world. We all do it. You have conversations, I have conversations. We come up with great ideas and we pitch them out into the world. Are they the most refined and the most perfected versions of those thoughts and ideas? Absolutely not. And we've talked about that before. That it's worth spending the time to think through some of the things that pop into our minds before they pop out of our mouths because... They're often not as refined as we might like them to be. So Waugh has just praised Chesterton's The Everlasting Man as this great work, a book of the century, he calls it. In essence, what Waugh is saying with this quote is something that we've discussed at length here, and that is the old Seneca line, which I've quoted before, when Seneca says, quote, I shall never be ashamed of citing a bad author if the line is good, end quote. And here, Waugh isn't really saying that Chesterton is a, quote, bad author, so to speak, not by any means. If you take the first portion of the review alone, it appears he is indeed defending Chesterton from Willis. From an overzealous researcher, as it were. Out of admiration for the man, even. I mean, they were both devout Catholics and writers, remember? They did have some overlap in their lives. 
Waugh being relatively young, Chesterton being in the later portions of his life, but certainly Waugh would have known of Chesterton at the time. But what Waugh is saying here is that Chesterton is indeed imperfect. He muddles thoughts and doesn't complete them, he meanders and sometimes he misses the mark. And he may have done much of that out of some desire to be the greatest or most prolific writer of his time, or even just to make enough money to enjoy a wealthy quality of life. Clearly, Waugh is a bit of an idealist here and sees this as very black and white in the arena of writing. Authors should be perfect. They should be refined. Their thoughts and musings should be tidy and focused. Biographers should be thorough, but not overly so, and write plainly enough for the average reader. I think I'm putting words in Waugh's mouth here, but I think those would be his critique of Willis as a biographer. So, while Waugh's standards may not be universally applicable or even fair sometimes, whatever motivates someone to do something that is ultimately good for the world, in this case, Chesterton's The Everlasting Man, even if those motivators aren't great or admirable. Thus, even though Chesterton may have been less than ideal in his writings and reasons, his works can still be great. And I've said this a hundred times before here on the podcast. Just because someone is imperfect, just because somebody shares different views than you or I, doesn't mean that they can't speak or write amazing words that are worth reading or listening to. And Waugh goes a step further even than that to say that his and others' contributions may actually be greater than they could have ever achieved with noble intentions. More on that in a moment. And this holds up, if you think about it. There are many cases of this throughout history. As I was thinking through and jotting down notes for this episode, I was trying to think of a good example of this. But perhaps the most notable in my mind, and this is a tough one, is the horrific experiments carried out on prisoners by Nazi doctors in concentration camps. Now, I know that's a big leap, but stay with me here for a moment. And this is a very controversial topic, and one that came to my attention many years ago, and still poses a somewhat unique and, and often revisited quandary for me. So bear with me as I kind of muddle through this myself. So here's the situation. It's World War II. The Nazis are rounding up Jews and other undesirables in their minds and putting them into these concentration camps. There, at the hands of Nazi doctors, horrific experiments are conducted on these prisoners. Individuals had limbs and whole bodies frozen. They were poisoned. They were subjected to extreme pressures and temperatures, all obviously without any kind of consent, nothing that would pass an ethics review board today. And these were truly horrible acts carried out by horrible people with the absolute worst of intentions. That said, they were also meticulously scientific in their documentation, thus leading to an absolute treasure trove of recovered data after the war. So the moral quandary here, of course, is whether scientists should use this data for learning and information given its gruesome and cruel origins. I don't know. What do you think? Your mind may immediately jump to one conclusion or another, but I'm curious. Take a moment and think about it. Should scientists following World War II use this data from human, essentially torture subjects, or should it be discarded? And this is precisely what Waugh is referencing in the quote. You may not see it at first, but it's there. These doctors didn't have any kind or good or noble intentions at all in their work. They were, for all intents and purposes, torturing other human beings for their own benefit. 
Now, of course, it helped that they didn't consider them human beings, so there's that piece. But what we, modern science and society, can learn from these experiments is immense and completely irreplaceable. You cannot and should not ever want to replicate these types of experiments, but they tell us a lot about the edges of human endurance and the things that the human body can withstand. But it's the fruit of a poisoned tree, to steal a legal phrase. That said, to the best of my knowledge, regardless of where you or I fall on this topic, the scientific community has deemed it acceptable to use this data. If for no other reason than to make the meaningless deaths of its victims mean something more than just Nazi data that got tossed in the garbage. And yes, I understand that's a dark example and hardly comparable to a critique of a biography of a writer, but it serves to illustrate the point that even imperfect specimens can create beauty. So too with us. And, as I said, we're back to making great contributions, even without noble intent. This is not, and I'm sure Wa would agree, a blanket excuse to have pride, emulation, avarice, and malice be our guiding light, because we may just make something amazing, but rather to say that the circles on the Venn diagram of selfish, narcissistic, malevolent people and those that create amazing contributions to the world do indeed overlap, at times. Thus, my takeaway is to look for those contributions, even from those whom I disagree or disapprove. They are probably, almost certainly there, in spite of the person or their intentions. And in that way, I can humanize even the worst of humanity. And that, I'd argue, is a good thing to do. Until next time, I'm Matthew Monroe, this is Quotations, and thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more, please subscribe in your favorite podcast app, or visit me at quotationspod.com to download and listen. Please also take a moment to recommend the podcast to a friend. That's a huge help. You can tweet at me at quotationspod. Send me an email to quotationspod at gmail.com. Find me on Instagram at quotationspod, or join the conversation on Facebook at quotationspod. I look forward to hearing from you, welcome your feedback, and thanks as always for listening.